I've been telling my friends that I haven't been going out even before COVID. Like I kind of got sick of um, just bars in general. But then I'm st- stuck at home for so long that I suddenly start to miss it. And I'm like, it's that bad that I'm missing bars. Four <laughs> months. Miss no, it's really, I miss it. I miss bars and clubs. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's more the socializing with people talaga din eh. I mean, diba, getting drunk on Zoom and everything. Like, it's fun, but it's different when you're actually with the person. Yeah. I think I just miss crowds. To think I, I thought I was, like, I was over that. Well, like so many things in life, regret comes last. Always comes last. Always comes last. <laughs> always, always. The lesson is always too late. Yeah, but the lesson is but, but the lesson is always there then. So okay, like since we're talking about lessons now, let's let's jump right into I'm recording, yeah, I'm recording. Um so yeah, Alex, yeah. like maybe you can tell us about what you do. Because I mean you've told me about this before, but like kind of like reintroduce us to what like you're a lawyer and you're into climate change. So what's what's the deal? I'm an environmental lawyer focused on climate change. And in the past four years, I've also narrowed it down to coastal and fisheries resource management. So anything that goes with um, the sea or food security and just ensuring that we have enough fish in the ocean, I guess that's the <laughs> simple way to put it. And I've also really... Um, had a focus on public policy as well. Most of the work that I do is public policy, just um, figuring out what the right um, policy environment is to support conservation efforts, as well as ensuring our food security in the country, especially with the threat of um, mainly climate change. And um, so that's what I do. And I'm also currently a law professor in DLSU, where I teach administrative law because most of the work that I do actually in public policy involves um, the administrative agencies. Most people ask me, what exactly does an an environmental lawyer do in the Philippines or how does that practice of law look like? And it's mostly really just um, assisting um, lawmakers, your congressmen, as well as your executive branch, your um, secretaries, your Department of Agriculture secretary. I work with them a lot. So interesting. But like, I mean, like with the, I, I always wanted to ask you this, especially since the pandemic, like how has that affected the, um, the efforts and I guess the, the situation with, with climate change? It's actually slowed down um, a lot of work, although we do see um, a couple of benefits, start to the benefits because they're very few in the um, the downside of them a lot. But um, at least from the pandemic, we've seen how um, human interaction in really interferes with nature. So we see how um, much uh, human presence interacts with um, wildlife when you give them a few days or even just a few weeks to breathe and kind of um, take their space back. Um, you see very positive uh, effects. So yeah. with that um, lesson, you actually see that um, if we do so little, if we just keep off um, shallow waters or some if we just protect some areas of the sea, um, wildlife could come back easily. It's not that big of an adjustment. As well as we've seen dramatically air pollution clear up. Because sure, of, yeah. Carbon footprint is much smaller. Yeah, yeah there's been really um, a reduced, uh, because of reduced movement as well as uh, the airplanes shut, uh, airlines shutting down and travel slowing down. We've seen um, the skies clearing, although it really doesn't have that. It does help air pollution, but it doesn't 
affect climate change as much because as we know, climate change is uh, way up in the atmosphere more than the, it's not the air pollution that you see just in the city. And then um, you also see that with enough political will, the things that we've been telling um, governments to do to slow down climate change is actually pretty doable. Like we've been telling governments for the longest time that maybe we can do a partial work from home setup. It's actually yeah. doable and we don't really need to. And there's so many meetings that we can do online, really. You can do all your meetings yeah. online. Yeah, no exactly. <laughs> yeah, and like even this conferences can now be done online and so many of our conferences have required us to travel and um, emit so much greenhouse gases, but now it's actually possible to have it in an online platform if people just adjusted enough. So those are the good things that we got from the pandemic. The bad thing about it is that a lot of the work has slowed down and a lot of the financial support that climate change is supposed to be getting as the most recent pressing problem has now, of course, rightfully so been shifted to public health. A lot of the government also has um, reallocated their budget away from uh, environmental um, programs and plans and moved it to public health because of the more pressing concern of COVID. And um, also, it's really slowed down work because we can't um, visit communities and mm. social interaction is so limited. Most of us can do our work online when you talk about a local community that doesn't have much internet access. There's really no way to go about it unless you visit them. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's definitely a challenge when you have to go to the far-flung areas, but it's so hard to get to that area, especially now that there are travel restrictions and everything. Exactly. Really, the um, timeline and the objectives that we've been having involved a lot of um, face-to-face um, meetings and workshops of um, really just uh, planning for conservation efforts in local communities. And um, even though we're trying to shift to an online platform, as I've mentioned, there's just really so much you can do, especially when you consider that most of these places don't have stable internet connection. Mm-hmm. So those are the downsides. So we're literally shifting all the things that we're supposed to be doing to 2021 and just hoping that things get better then. Which areas are you working on in the Philippines? A lot of the areas that we work on right now in my organization is in um, Cebu, Bohol, and Negros because we have Tanyan Strait there. And because you have Tanyan Strait, which is already a network of marine protected areas because the whole strait is protected, it's much easier to coordinate. So we thought of um, doing our flagship program there just so that it's easier for us to do and there's a shorter learning curve. But we've also um, established sites in Mindanao and Zamboanga, Sibukay, as well oh. as wow. yeah, as well as up north in um, uh, the Zambales area here in Luzon. Oh, interesting! Yeah. I used to live in the Zamboanga region for six years. Oh my and, gosh! Uh, yeah, yeah. Now I work in uh, Zambales actually every week. Oh, nice! My last work trip before anything happened was in Zamboanga, Sibuga. <laughs> oh wow! Okay, Ipil. Yeah. That was the last trip I took. Okay, Ipil, Kabasalan, which part? Uh, um, oh, Ipil, yeah. Ipil, okay, yes. capital. Uh-uh, capital. yeah. The food is great. Yeah, be careful <laughs> though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, be careful. <laughs> but Alex, I'm really curious about the, I mean, in terms of the Philippine context, and I know we've talked about this, but this is probably a year ago now, and I'm sure things have changed. Like what? What are the pressing matters that need to be uh, addressed? Like in spite of the pandemic, because I feel like it's still important eh? and it's still escalating. It seems like based on the news I've been seeing. 
a lot of the things that we've been talking about government right now, I mean, you hear it all the time in um, the news that uh, the government is doing a COVID recovery plan. Um, and it's basically the roadmap for everything that we're going to do to reignite our economy once um, the threat has been lifted or if at least we've um, done enough to control the threat of COVID. A lot of the things that we've been lobbying for in Congress is to ensure that any type of COVID-19 recovery plan is um, informed by climate change data, or as we call it, um, any recovery plan should be green. Because it's like um, this whole, and you're right, Nikki, you're totally, totally right. This whole COVID-19 thing, when you plan for it and when, when you plan for the future, if you only prepare for COVID and not think about the other is it's a total loss of opportunity and a loss of investment, of course, taxpayers' money. Like preparing for a triathlon, but only preparing for the bike part. You know, oh. when you have all these other things coming at you, um, like uh, climate change, um, COVID-19 is really just the start of the problem. And also, we keep on saying that um, COVID-19 and the rise of um, pandemics or new, dis- new infectious diseases is actually very linked to the relationship uh, with the environment that we have. Mm. Um, we've seen from SARS, from um, COVID, that it really usually comes from animals. And so we really have to reevaluate the relationship that we have with wildlife and the proximity that we have of civilization to natural habitats like forests. Because a lot of this new emerging infectious diseases come from wildlife. And if we um, exploit them too much or if we build our... Um, cities or our towns too close to forests, which actually are supposed to be serving us as natural barriers to disease, we increase our exposure. And then it's just like a cycle of um, a health crisis and doing another plan that's not green enough. And then we get another health crisis. And then we're just wasting valuable time and effort and money. Yeah, that's so frustrating. I mean, it's yeah. like, why aren't we learning from our mistakes and from history, right? Diba? Like it's... Exactly. Uh, but snap, every century, I mean, right? Yeah, yeah every, every century, century there's a some okay. sort of global pandemic. So yeah, living more sustainable, I think that would definitely yeah. help. And I think it should be climate. You, you're right, eh? you have to be prepared. It can't just be uh, when something happens, then we all go out and help. It's better to have everyone prepared so that uh, when it does happen, it's not everyone has to figure out what to do and mobilize then because everyone already know should they should know what to do at that point. And a lot of the solutions that we've actually been um, proposing to this um, pandemic is actually the same solutions that you would propose or that would help climate change. For example, if you source your food locally, in the pandemic we've seen in the first part of the lockdown that a lot of the panic or the problems that we were having was from the food supply or the food chain. A lot of the border lockdowns inhibited um, food suppliers to come into, for example, Metro Manila, where we don't really have any farms to supply our food. But here you see that... um, if you uh, support local agriculture, if you support um, local food sources more, in the next pandemic, you wouldn't have to exert um, so much effort in figuring out how to secure your food supply. Because if it comes locally and then you're forced to close borders to stop a health crisis, then you wouldn't have any problems with your food supply because they come locally as well. So it's really those kinds of things. And um, you kind of see that if you really just invest in these solutions that um, environmentalists have been saying, they actually are bang for your buck because they um, protect you not only from an environmental crisis, but as we've seen as well, it can 
very well be helpful even in a health crisis, which is an entirely different problem. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. Because I feel like, uh, you know, like we, we hear like the hippies, you know, they're saying grow your own food, you know, have your own renewable <laughs> energy. But look, what's happening now? Parang it's like everyone knows naman yeah. what to do. But it seems it's so difficult to shift in terms of the in a structural level. And uh, I guess that's my, I mean... A realistic like, one. I mean, yeah, a realistic one, realistic, exactly. Right? Yeah. You have to be grounded. I mean, you can see the top of the mountain, but you can't just jump and get to the mountain. You got to take steps. You got to do it right. You got to choose the right path because you miss a rock. Dude, that's it. Yeah, 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 exactly, <laughs> exactly. So you got to pick the right path and somehow find the best way to get on top of that mountain? Well, it has to come from both. It has to come from structural changes as well as individual changes. It's always a question of do you do top to bottom where the government tells you what to do and then we are forced to adopt it. For example, if the government, like just like California, requires every household to be solar powered and then you, um, is that a good solution just to force your citizens to adopt a regulation? Or would it be that citizens who are now um, demanding uh, more renewable energy sources, um, will that drive the demand for governments to listen? And I think that question hasn't really been answered yet in the Philippines. I think um, the, the public policy aspect of renewable energy and all these changes that we're supposed to be doing for climate change has not really been threshed out yet in the Philippines. But a lot of the stoppages or the blockages, I think, um, at least when it comes to renewable energy and talking about solutions for climate change, is we really need more government support. I mean, you can't incentivize business to pull out Agree. Capital, right? <laughs> Agree. You can't incentivize, yeah. I mean, you can't force business to dole out um, capital or um, additional money for capitalization uh-huh. to shift to a greener pathway if you don't incentivize it. Because a lot of businesses would be, especially now recovering from the pandemic, a lot of the businesses would really just try to be short-sighted or uh, medium-term and uh, fight for work to survive or to revive their business. So it's really up to governments to incentivize it. A lot of the things that governments see when we talk about environmental um, investment is that they see it as, well, one, costly. If you incentivize businesses because you'll have to cut that out from your national budget and give it to businesses if they decide to turn green or solar. But also, it's we really need to drive the role, I think, of the public and civil society is that we really need to drive home the point that anything that we invest into solving climate change right now will actually come out the savings in the future. Because just like a couple of years ago, we lose probably $41 billion in agriculture alone in climate change effects. And if you're able to mitigate those effects and lessen the $41 billion per year by doling out a bit of incentives, incentives for businesses to go green, it's really it's a cost and benefit analysis, which sadly we haven't really done um, to support policies in the government. And I think that's where the critical role of civil society comes in, is to really yeah. support um, all the solutions that we've been saying with uh, cost-benefit analysis or like some kind of science and research to back up what we're all saying. May I ask uh, a question? Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you're aware of the net metering program. Okay, so uh, given your experience, I'm sure you're also aware 
how the net metering programs work in like the United States or in Europe, for example. Uh, I don't think it's generation cost, no? Yung uh, buyback ng distribution utility. Uh, imagine if instead of having a new feed-in tariff, the government issued something to incentivize putting solar on residential homes. I think that could be economical. I mean, economies of scale, right? Yeah. Somehow link it with pag-ibig so people who want it have access to it and then that way you could somehow bridge that gap. A type of loan that would be able to, um, in renewable energy projects, one of the biggest um, hurdles that um, people need to um, get over is, um, we call it the duck curve, where um, the amount it takes for you to get to your ROI is so far away and the losses or the expenses that you have to do um, to get to your ROI, you'll have to spend so much until you get there. And that's why it's called the duck curve because you're, you're, um Gains go down before yeah, it goes yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think one of the, and that's great when you mention a loan, because I think one of the things that could really encourage, um, it could, could encourage investment in solar energy, whether by a comp- company or a household or a family, is access to loans that could kind of um, uh, fill in that duck curve. Yeah, I think, diba? it, I think it could be economical. It, yeah. it really could be economical. And especially since what just recently happened with Miralco, it just really makes sense to do solar already. I mean, my electric bill just recently is, I know it's wrong for a fact, but even then, it just makes sense to invest in solar energy. Especially since it's getting so cheap. And they're projecting that ROI is in like seven years. Yeah, yeah. Um, the residential. But commercial thing, I think it could, especially if you're operating like a, a plant with very high uh, demand, not mm-hmm. even peaking demand, but like a daytime load demand. Because mm-hmm. a lot of factories in industrial zones definitely do manufacturing yeah. round the clock. So uh, I think those types of organizations would definitely avail of something that's long term, especially if they have a PESA deal that's like 20 or 15 years long, right? Yeah. So it's really, yeah, I think it really comes down to um, government support as well to incentivize all these companies to um, switch to solar. But but Alex, yeah. are there any, um, like, especially, like, it's two years till the next elections, right? Two years, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Are there a lot of, are there more people, like, in the majority who are um, for this, like, this initiative? Or is it the minority that's <laughs> sort of trying to, like... Parang it's a minority, wala. <laughs> <laughs> Parang yung problem kasi talaga is general consensus, hindi pa rin talaga priority yung environment. A lot of Filipinos, I think, but even including politicians, that's really sad because if you think about climate change and if you think about where the Philippines is situated, when you talk about stronger typhoons, we're the first line defense of the world if it, if it comes from the Pacific Ocean because it's right there and there's exactly. no one to block it from us, diba? And if you really look at the losses that we've been sustaining, it really doesn't make sense to think that it's a first world um, problem. But of course, like, Traditionally, the awareness of Filipinos and politicians just haven't been there for environmental issues. And again, that's really where everyone, civil society needs to step up, especially in like circles that are other than ours. Um, I think there's been uh, a huge um, discussion on how talking about issues in Twitter or in Facebook, it's kind of an echo chamber because you're preaching to the choir. 
So it, uh, the work I think really comes when um, into reaching those um, far flung communities, those um, circles that are, might not be as aware. Because ultimately, um, when you raise awareness in, um, for example, Class C, B, and E, um, those are the people who could push the vote as well with their congressmen and their senators and their local politicians to care more. So in that way, it's a bottom to top approach where the demand really comes from the voters as well. Because that's really how you make politicians listen. Grassroots. Yeah. 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 But that's you know. how we listen. That's it. We only care about yeah. the votes. No, but it's just kind of like frustrating because like, I'm sure you guys have heard about uh, Tao Expedition. And it's, it's its own ecosystem now. You know, they grow their own food. They're able to bring give jobs to the locals. And they're able to basically like... Uh, Parang embrace their culture with by sharing the the bring well of course before the tourists were the main driver but now parang they're still there though you know what I mean like I I for me it's like I, I've seen a lot of different um subcultures in in the country wherein people are like uh doing good like we we talked to like um with where we had Raf Janisho uh, he does mad travel on the podcast like a few weeks ago. And then, you know, we were just talking like, uh, there's a lot of, uh, um, I guess, neglected wisdom from the indigenous uh, people that are, you know, thinking very, very um, long-term, very, very for everybody. And uh, I don't know, like I, I you know, I, I've been hearing a lot of, from lately actually, a lot of uh, families uh, that are, that want to migrate out of Manila, you know, because now that, you know, they have kids and parang Manila sort of like such the epicenter of the pandemic, they want to be able to just be around nature. So sometimes I think, oh, is this the shift? Is this the shift into like that, that consciousness wherein we got to be, you know, like it's just, we, we, we can't do anything about it. Right? So let's try to live as sustainably and, and near nature as possible. And I think also, I mean, I might be speaking personally, but uh, this pandemic has really shown you that it's possible to be stuck in your house for this long a time. And if you take that, if you take that possibility, I start to think, well, I would like to be stuck in a place that I can, that I feel like I can exactly. stay for a long while without um, getting sick of it or not really liking my environment. So I fully understand that. And that's true na um, there's a wealth of indigenous uh, knowledge that we're missing out on. And I think a lot of um, environmentalists have been um, really trying to listen to indigenous peoples. And a lot of the conservation boards that we have now in the government have indigenous people representatives. I used to think that it was because they usually own the land or they live in the land. But um, now I'm starting to see that it's really because there's just a wealth of knowledge that they know. If you think about it, if there's any community in the Philippines or even the world that has lived so harmoniously with nature without any um, problems, it's really the indigenous people. And we've actually started mentoring a couple of um, youth leaders to talk about climate change. And one of the things that uh, we first talk about is really um, why um, indigenous peoples are so important to the conversation. And one of them, uh, I talked to them last Saturday about this, exactly about this for their first module. And uh, one of my mentees said something so nice and so beautiful. I asked him, um, why do you think um, it, these types of communities, like indigenous communities, have it 
find it so much easier to live harmoniously with nature and why us um, in modern society who are more educated if you think about if you um, think about it in some sense and have more access to technology why do we find it so hard to just live harmoniously with nature which is ultimately more um, beneficial to us and he just said that maybe it all boils down to what we define a good life is and he said that maybe um, the definition of a good life of indigenous people is that they are able to take take care of the earth, of exactly what gives them or provides them a good life. So I kind of thought about that and I kind of, uh, it all boils down again to the way you live your life and living sustainably and just having this overall, I think, appreciation of Mother Earth and also your close connection to or reliance to the ecosystem. I think humans have detached so far from that, thinking that all of this is renewable and not none of these things would run out and it just... I think it's our ego, <laughs> like yes, the human yes. ego, just we're the center of the universe and we're not part of a larger web of life. So I think that really was insightful when he said that it was really, it all boils down to what you define as a good life is. Oh, I, don't, I totally agree. I think that's such a, that's a beautiful statement. Overall happiness level. Overall yeah. happiness level. Yeah. I guess I'm just curious about like, personally for you, I mean, We've all been home pretty much for the last four or five months. Like, how how was the shift? Has there been a shift, like a mental shift, emotional shift in terms of um, how you see things, how you see your life, or how you want to, like, live your life, like, moving forward? At the start of the pandemic, it was very hard for me personally to concentrate on my work because it felt like there was this huge problem that the globally that was happening and it was so um so so much more immediate at this time than climate change because it's an immediate threat and for a while i really had to sit myself down and refocus and think of why the work i do still contributes despite this new um new problem that we're facing and i really think um i found that through um uh, the first few weeks of the pandemic i really started reading about how a lot of this infectious diseases would um would uh, be because of our close relationship to nature. And that's one of the things that I learned. And that's one of the things that I carried throughout this whole lockdown of just advocating for the same in government to really think about the environmental aspect of pandemics. But um, it's really <laughs> it's really hard. I've had my bouts of anxiety as well. I've had my bouts of, is the world ever going to return back to more normal? I've even sounds bad but I I even had a face of hoarding toilet paper and <laughs> just because I was so worried and it really got that level of crazy for me but I think uh, probably I feel like I've normalized I feel yoga helps a lot and you know this Nikki yeah 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 but yeah it's really it it just really gets hard sometimes to focus on the work when you have such a crazy thing happening outside and such no, a big I, problem the world is facing. No, I get you. I get you. I think it's... Yeah, yeah. I, it's, I, I'm actually... I'm, I mean, I'm not saying I'm glad. I'm, I'm, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's relatable to hear that you're also struggling because we all are going through... We're going through the same thing. You know, we're the anxiety... The waves of anxiety and, you know, depression and confusion, you know, like nihilism. But parang... The thing is, we can't forget about the big picture, Renick. Because we're still alive, you know what I mean? 
Like, and sometimes it kind of puts things into perspective na, okay, this is just, we're used to a certain kind of life. Now it's been taken away. But the thing is, there's still a lot of work to do. And, it, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you, you're doing pretty meaningful work. And it, there's, you, you seem to have like a, 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 a great sense of purpose. And I think that's super important now, like to like be driven by that and not just by, you know, money or fame or power. Like, uh, I don't know, that's just me. That's just my opinion, though. But one of the things I think that I also took away from the whole um, experience of lockdown and the pandemic is that I really hope people start seeing how little they need to live. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think uh, we've all been forced to conserve in some way. We've all felt how it feels when resources are scarce because we just, uh, at the start of the pandemic, we just didn't have access to it. And I think um, people start seeing that it's really possible to, again, I'm going to mention it, source your food locally. At the start of the pandemic, we really didn't have access to as, not even as much to um, groceries. So we really relied, at least in my community, we relied on community-supported agriculture where our barangay had one supplier come in from Baguio and bring us um, para mobile palenque and bring us our fruits, vegetables, and meat. And you see... You, we've been saying for the longest time that community-supported agriculture is the way we've been saying for the longest time. Just get your food locally so you don't have too much greenhouse gas emissions. And now I hope people are starting to see that it is possible. It's not that hard. A lot of people think being sustainable and being low waste is hard, but it really isn't. You've already done it at the start of, pand- of the pandemic. And also you just really need so little to survive. And I hope people take away from that. And all, everything else is just a bonus. Exactly. I, I agree so. with you completely. Although uh, there really are some challenges. Nikki knows this as well. We talked about it with Ra. Uh, we tried to do something similar. So in Sambuanga del Norte, about uh, four or five years ago, we successfully did a similar type of program. Uh, not government-funded, though, privately. We uh, taught people in a town outside of the capital how to plant basic uh, fruits and vegetables. Like, you know, the stuff that's easy. Tomato, papayas, chile. Uh, things that you can uh, you can schedule over one year, but you can have multiple mm-hmm. uh, harvests. It worked, but then when we tried to implement the same thing in uh, a town in Batangas, I won't say where na lang, uh, we encountered a lot of challenges uh, institutional, institutionally. And... Uh, it actually, my cousin and I decided to, uh, after about six months, shut the operation down because it wasn't economical anymore for for us to do the. And we thought, then you know, because the people you will employ to do the uh, similia, to the transplanting, to the watering, to the harvesting, to the farm gate price selling, to the market in that specific town, parang sila rin yung so, paano na? I mean, I, I get it when it's government, when it's really uh, channeled through government. I think there's a little bit more structure to it. Yeah. Uh, versus if you just try to wing it, kind of a lot of things happen. And again, I think there um, it, it uh, boils down again to um, government support if, mm-hmm. and institutional support. If the government is able to set up a system where they are able to support community-supported agriculture, then um, it 
will run um, much better. Because a lot of the things nga, that uh, we encounter in all these solutions is that um, there aren't enough um, institutional policies yet to support it. And that's exactly uh, the work that I'm trying to do, is to put enough policies in there to make things running smoothly. And I think one of the biggest keys opportunities, but also one of the biggest hindrances, knowing how hard it is to work with um, government. <laughs> Legislators. <laughs> but Alex, what made you decide to be a lawyer anyway? And also specifically get into... And climate change and, advocate. Yeah, and climate change. I mean, like, it's a, it's a, what's your story? I grew up in Bacol. So I'm not exactly a city girl. And then uh, add to that my... Dad became a trustee of um, a marine sanctuary in an island in Negros. So when he put that up, um, the the story of that island was that, and I've always been so amazed um, when he tells me this story. They saw the island when they were out um, boating and fishing. And then they noticed that there was an eagle's nest in one of the trees. They heard from their locals that the mayor wanted to cut down the tree because it was a big tree. They want, she wanted to sell the wood for it. So my dad and four other of his friends wanted to manage the island and turn it to a marine protected area. They had to deal with a, uh, they had to take out a loan from the land bank, a trust. Um, and then they had to put up a non-government organization. And then they had to have the whole island declared as a marine protected area through convincing the Department of Environment and as well as the local government unit there. It was a great amount of work that he was doing. So we'd have to spend weekends on the island because he was working. That's amazing. Yeah. So a lot of the things that my weekends really growing up were spent on that island. I don't know when people ask me now why, I just say that I guess because I grew up there, it's the, it just really made sense. I mean, I I grew up in an island. I I enjoyed um, being there every weekend, getting away from school, getting away from the city. And I loved how it looked. I loved seeing all this wild wildlife. I saw like snakes in the kitchen so <laughs> I just I just really couldn't imagine doing anything else because I love that island so much and I thought to myself that if I'm gonna do anything with my life it's to protect this island which of course eventually it turned into something much bigger because I'm now here in Manila and then climate change really happened when I and it's gonna sound so cliche but uh, climate change really happened when I saw The Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore. An Inconvenient Truth, yeah. Um, and it really um, opened my eyes and I realized that more than just uh, there were, there was a whole world at stake. It really just wasn't an island anymore. And I decided that if the problem was that big, then maybe I should be devoting a lot of my time to trying to solve that because the very existence of Earth is being um, threatened. And so that's what I did. And then at first I thought I wanted to be a journalist. Um, uh, so I always was thinking about what was my um, medium for my advocacy. And I always thought that it was journalism because I thought that it was important to tell stories. But then for some reason, I think, Really, honestly, because I didn't want to take too much math subjects and my journalism course had too many math subjects. So I... <laughs> I feel I you, Alex. Same, same. Abogado, <laughs> <Right>? ma. <laughs> I started to draw it and go... And the only thing I thought of at that time was how, how will I tell my dad and he doesn't get pissed off that I'm dropping this subject. I mean, I'm dropping this course and switching to art school. 
<laughs> so um, I thought about it and I said, I'll just tell him I'll go to law school so he doesn't get upset. And then I went to law school. And then I realized I liked it. I, I think nice. I'm fit for law school. So that's what I did. And here I am now. <laughs> nice. That's an amazing nice. journey. That's an amazing journey. But Alex, <laughs> like, I guess this is just me. And Snap knows that I'm always trying to like find <laughs> answers that maybe I shouldn't be asking. But <laughs> we can I edit mean, the money. We can edit the money. <laughs> so let me ask okay. the land. But okay. like, I guess because, I mean, I really enjoy talking to you when it comes to these things. Eh? But I also like how there's a very um, noticeable progression in terms of the effects of uh, um, climate change. And, you know, we talked about this, you know, Manila is designed, uh, the city, there's no city planning. That's why all the floods and, you know, all these like infrastructural problems keep coming up and the earthquakes. Pa. But like from what you know and what I guess with the community and uh, the, the climate change sphere, what's ha- what's, what are things you need to look out, um, especially here in uh, Metro Manila? Metro Manila specifically is a lot of it is going to disappear when the sea level rises. It's not going to happen in our lifetime, but if you're going to have kids, they probably need to um, look at the maps of sea level before Jesus. they <laughs> before they set up their houses. Yeah, this is, this is a reality, right? We've had this conversation. Yeah, we've had this conversation a lot. Yeah, <laughs> and then you pair that with having to check where the earthquake fault is and the livable parts of Manila is going to be very small. Um, so that's the reality. Not even Manila, maybe. Yeah, not even Manila. Manila and Makati are going to be underwater. It's probably going to be Paranaque, but then you have a fault line also, I think, in Paranaque. Right on the side, yeah, and the yeah, smaller so, part. Right? Yeah. Yes, I don't think you should really be there anyway. Um, as to the other um, islands of the Philippines, a lot of the smaller islands will, of course, um, be susceptible to sea level rise as well. And you also have to think about if there are stronger typhoons, don't uh, try not to live in the eastern seaboard. So that includes... Shargao, um, that whole eastern side of the Philippines, because um, the stronger the typhoons get, they really will be your first line of defense. And we saw, saw we saw what happened in Yolanda and how devastated they were they were compared to the other more inward islands. So that's one of the things that we're gonna be thinking. And not to be apocalyptic, but um, a lot of the projections that climate change is showing is that if the water swarms too much, if the global mean temperature rises even 1.5 to 2 degrees that's such a small margin by the way it doesn't it's not it's not a lot um the waters in the philippines are going to get too hot that the fish will start to migrate to cooler waters which is in the northern hemisphere so japan and china and all the other countries um above us because it's just so hot here because we're in the equator so we have to, that's why we're so worried about food security and as early as now we're trying to ramp up it's really um kind of Parang defeatist, defeatist approach, but also because we really are left with no choice, where um, we're starting to um, really try to make our corals and our marine ecosystem healthy enough that if um, climate change does hit, they're only they'll be able to jump back faster. So medyo ganun na yung approach. And we're just yeah. trying to get them ready for it to come. And as well as it's going to be too hot to, as an agricultural country, um, reliant on... Um, crops. It's going. To, a lot of our crops will be um, 
not feasible as well. It's going to be too hot. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be a time where we'll have to import a lot of them, especially if we have a bout of El Nino. And El Nino is going to get hotter and longer for our country because of climate change. And when there's El Nino, nothing grows. So we'll have to make sure, again, that our economy is able to um, be strong enough for when the time comes that we'll have to have a couple of months that we're only importing our food. Wow. That's, uh, that is, yeah. So it sounds like we're going to need to move to like Mars or something. Or like to like, I mean, it, what is, do you see where I want to go? <laughs> Europe is a good idea. <laughs> to be honest, we, they keep saying that if climate change gets worse, um, Europe is going to look like the Philippines. Really? Yeah. So Europe would be... Now I was I'm not so crazy, huh, Nikki? From yeah. years ago, huh? What? She's an actual lawyer and environmentalist saying this. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really it's just like I don't know. I mean, like I, I, I for me, it's I. We always have these conversations. It gets it gets very existential in the sense that, parang especially you know we're all um you know, we're all getting older and, you know, sometimes people say, ask you, do you want to start a family? And then me, I really, like, I remember talking to a bunch of, like, uh, uh, people in, 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 in Portugal and they were all very, you know, green-minded and wanted to, you know, save the earth. But then they were like, you know what, with the looks of it, it doesn't look good for the world. But, like, if knowing that maybe all we can do is just be nice to people, live in the most sustainable way that we can and just uh, that's zero sum game that's that's i mean sorry i'm not being nega but that's zero sum game but yeah it's i know like, but uh, i, I, I get you this but i'll i'll parang you're not adding to the solution okay you may not be part of the problem but you're not adding to the solution what i think but you, you want but you want, but, but you want to move to mars <laughs> No, 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 no. I want to move to Mars so that things can become more... You watch. It has to be double. Uh, if, uh, you remember the, the, the last talk I sent you, the Jack Ma-Elon Musk one, right? Yeah, Jack Ma yeah. wants to fix the Earth. Elon Musk wants to go explore the, world, the stars. You can do both at the same time. Create sustainable systems using policy framework and implement it. Because you can have very, very good political frameworks, but uh, if you do not implement, you don't really make the most out of those good policies. Yeah. Interestingly enough, the Philippines actually has one of the best environmental laws and climate change laws in the world. Really? When we're in the UN, yeah, we're, when we're in the UN, they ask us about all these laws that we have. And to be and because it's something that they don't have. And even, um, to be honest, California, they, none of the renewable energy efforts were really regulated or were really lost, but it was really just... Um, well, one customer demand um, uh, really asked for renewable a shift to renewable energy from them because they were more aware. But sorry, going back to um, what Snap was saying, it really is a question now of implementation. We really have so many good laws in the Philippines. We really have so many good laws, and it, it's really it's a host of problems for implementation here. It's well, number one, corruption. Num- which then I think you really can solve if you just raise the salaries of our government officials. They don't earn much. And then you really have to funnel in more budget into environmental um, offices in local government units. Um, 
So um, it really is, yeah, a question of implementation. And um, as well as there's always been a de debate whether do we do personal as actions or do we do systemic change? Mm -hmm. And SNAP is right. It really has to be both. Um, a lot of people have been saying that stop doing personal action because what's the only thing that's going to make a difference is systemic change. And then you have another um, party saying that how can you do systemic change if uh, you don't do individual or personal action? But it, we've seen also in the pandemic, and there was this study that came out that all the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions because of personal action, because none of us are traveling or using our cars anymore because we're in lockdown. And this assessment was done in March or April when the whole world was still on strict lockdown. It really accounted for less than 20% of the solution and it produced greenhouse gases um, very little lang. But even then, I think there's huge um, support for individual action because um, as I said, it can be a bottom-up approach just like what California did. When people started being more aware of climate change, when businesses like Facebook, even though they're not the best name right now to mention, Facebook or Google or um, I think even um, Walgreens started shift. Uh, well, yeah, Walgreens started shifting to green energy. I asked my professor when I was studying in California, and I was like, "What were the public policies or what were the laws that were implemented?" And he was like, "None. It really was because bottom-up approach, grassroots. The people just started asking for more renewable energy, and young professionals, young CEOs like um, Mark Zuckerberg." Um, were in tune enough and felt uh, responsibility to address climate change that's out of the goodness of his heart. He just said, well, Facebook is going green, period. So I think those are the kinds of opportunities that we have. And that's really the type of, I think, uh, mass action and mass calls that we're supposed to be doing. And hopefully we have young CEOs who, will, who are able to shift to greener economies as well and to greener operations for the main reason that even without government intervention, they just feel like it's the right thing to do. Oh, wow. No, it's so true. That makes a lot so of sense. True. That I hope yeah. I hope a lot of people hear that. That yeah, that should resonate with some people, right? Like yeah. you can really, I mean, you can see it them in the little things, Rene. You know, like how you know now, parang bring your own, you know, like own bag to the grocery, and it's little things like that. I think are going to trickle over. I mean, it's like the same. I I guess. No, I don't even want to mention the mask issue. But like, I mean, like, I don't even want to go there. <laughs> Forget it. I know, I know. I just like, I can't help it. I can't help it. No, but like, it's like every time, dude. I know, I know, I know. It's just, been, it's been, it's, it's, it's been a bad week. It's been a bad week. But okay, Alex, I want to end this on a good note, though. What are what are good um, uh, examples of like maybe communities or maybe even countries that are doing like the right thing in terms of moving forward for a more, I guess, sustainable and uh, uh, green future? This will come as a surprise, but I'm going to say China. Really? Wow. Um, they, <laughs> India next. <laughs> yeah, they really yeah, dramatically, sure. and I think it's a necessity a necessity um, thing also. They dramatically decreased their air pollution because it just got so bad. And their air quality standards are so much better now that I actually found out that to try and buy a car in China, you'll have to wait for three years. Wow. Because they regulate the number of cars that much that you'll have to wait that long of a time to buy a new car because air pollution is going so bad. And 
actually, um, and I think this is a function of China really just being opportunistic economically, but the race for green technology, especially to create an efficient um, battery for solar energy, a lot of the incentives that the Obama administration, even the Bush administration, provided for um, science and tech development in the U.S. for climate change, a lot of that has been stripped off by Trump, as we all know. So China now is trying to be the leader and trying to, the government is trying to encourage that kind of um, science and tech research and development because it's always been said that since solar, the only problem with it really right now is storage and creating a battery that's cheap and efficient. If China is able to crack the code first, the amount of money that's gonna um, funnel into their economy just by all these countries and all these companies buying that battery, it's a huge opportunity. Um, business-wise. So that's why I think um, China is a leader also because they're just thinking and working so smart as usual. I and, guess unahan nila yung Japan, no? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And um, Norway and Sweden are um, really, uh, when we talk about waste management and managing methane, which is the most potent greenhouse gas, um, Norway and Sweden are really doing wonders with um, their waste management. So um, that's really... Great. You could really, it's not a country, but you really could look at California too. I keep mentioning California, but they really are a an, an, uh, leader in trying to um, rely less on electric grids. This might be my bias lang as um, a public policy person, but when you look at the development of how they were able to um, institute the right policies and to get government support and the role of private business as well as its citizens in um really driving that shift to greener energy. It's really, um, really, really interesting to see how much um, they capitalized on that momentum and really um, used it to change. When you said uh, methane capture, so it's a digesters or? Um, I'm not too sure. I think they um, have incinerators. That's what they do. Ah, so waste energy, municipal waste. Yes. Municipal waste. Yes. Rather than letting it compost. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, so we kind of have to change that incineration law, no? A lot of the technology also sa incinerators, I think a lot of um, some technology get it wrong where they burn it. I'm really not sure what the scientific term is, but when they burn the garbage wrong, it really doesn't capture or get rid of the methane. But uh, whatever Sweden and Norway has been doing has been uh, that type of um, incineration technology has been working. So walang dioxins na lumalabat, mas delikado yata sa... To like uh, biodiversity, right? Dioxins in yeah. from the plastics. Yeah, especially from the plastics. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's apparently really, really bad. But yeah, I, so I heard cement I plants. So, that they capture that. Yeah, yeah, through membranes, membrane filters, and uh, I, I forgot the term for the other one. But we ex- we explored it. Uh, I actually work in RE, so mm-hmm. uh, of course biomass in Negros, and then uh, the, the solars as well in uh, San Carlos, uh, Baez, Manapla. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really think that waste energy, especially municipal waste energy, is something that is super untapped. Because then you won't have people throwing their garbage into the river, into the water, because uh, you could somehow monetize it and make oh, it Stan, more could you expound on this municipal energy in layman's terms for our... Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, TLDR, uh, TLDR. So parang basically uh, cities have garbage collection systems or concessions and uh, these people either put them in dump sites or if it's segregated waste they can sell it to 
uh, certain facil- industrial facilities that manufacture mm-hmm. like uh, concrete mix and stuff like that because uh, they use the waste to generate heat, to generate power, to create cement, and uh, some of the byproducts are also used in the process of creation of echo bricks and stuff like that. And another point lang, since Snap mentioned garbage collection and eco-bricks and everything, um, when we talk about the plastic uh, problem, I, uh, there's such a huge zero-waste movement or low-waste movement right now. And one of the things that we've been trying to figure out also with government is how do we incentivize cement um, producers to buy the plastic? to put it in the cement, to use that as the binder instead of this other chemical that they're using. And this this is a great example of where government um, incentives and support is supposed to come in to drive the effort. Because right now, cement companies are not buying the plastic, the sachets actually, because the sachets are really the ones you can't recycle. The reason why the cement companies are not buying the sachets is because it's much more expensive as if you just use the class, the normal chemical that they use to bind the cement blocks. So I think that's one of the prime, prime examples where hopefully government can step in, provide maybe a tax break or as an incentive for all these cement companies that use um, sachets in their binders for their cement blocks so that we can finally solve this problem of plastic waste. But so far, it's not yet happening. Uh, <laughs> God knows. Well, God. I mean, Alex, that was that was super um, enlightening. I'm really glad that uh, you're able to share um, what's been happening in climate change and what's happening here in the country, and also with other um, really good examples. Like, I I feel like a lot of people need to know more about this. Is there anything? I mean, are there are there any sources like online that people can look into that people aren't aware of, like? websites or like videos like on the top of your head um climate reality by al gore has all these educational materials that you can access to just um listen to all aspects of climate change like the business of fossil fuels what exactly climate change is all these projections as well as honestly if you look at the pag-asa website of the government you'll get to see um, maps that have projections of what the philippines will look like when we have sea level rise and all those um things as well as i think to be honest i really just follow also all these accounts like national geographic ocean conservancy and all these um greenpeace and there's just a wealth, especially on Twitter, there's a wealth of information that they post about all these um, emerging issues and as well as new studies and new science that are coming out. Um, and also just follow the UN, it's called, it's at UNFCCC on um, Twitter or they're also on Instagram. And that's the UN body specifically for climate change. And they post all these things as well on climate change and all these updates that will be a great resource for anyone who's interested. All right. There we go. We have Take no climate ex- action, yeah, guys. Yeah. No excuse. Action. No excuse. You want to <laughs> live on a mountain or you want to live by the beach? Climb <laughs> <Time> it now. <laughs> Alex, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank so you much so fun. much. Thanks so much. Fun. Fun. This, this is a lot of fun. Thank you. And I hope to see you guys in person soon when all of this is Hope so too, Alex. Hope so soon. Take care, Alex. Thanks, guys. See you. Bye. Bye. Take care. Take care. Stay safe.